Dionysian Revival, Reflections on the Bacchae by Euripides, and William Golding's Lord of the Flies by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 2. Working on the material this week and reading over the Bacchae of Euripides reminded me, for reasons I think will probably become apparent here in a little while, of the prophet Amos, who began his prophecy. He was from uh, the southern kingdom, uh, uh, Israelite kingdom of Judah. He went to the north, to the kingdom of Israel, and began to prophesy there, and he drew a nice crowd by prophesying against all the pagan peoples, surrounding pagan peoples, the the peoples of Gaza and Philistia and Damascus and Tyre and so on. And uh, he railed against them and spoke of their war crimes and so on and so forth and drew quite a crowd. The northern uh, Israelites were pleased to hear all this. And then he changed the tone slightly and began to prophesy against the southern kingdom of Judah, which was a kind of cousin culture, you know, to the northern kingdom. And they were they were at odds with one another, but still they were all... They were all Israelites, ultimately, so that was a little uncomfortable. But finally, uh, Amos turned his prophetic focus on northern Israelite uh, nation of Israel. And then the tone of his audience's reception changed dramatically for obvious reasons. And I was thinking of that also for obvious reasons this week because I was thinking probably Amos swallowed hard when he got to that place where he was going to have to talk about things that those who had been very pleased to hear all that other stuff might not be as happy to hear. And the play, The Bakke, puts one in that position, I'm, I'm afraid, or put, certainly puts one like me in that position, at least. And All the more so because, because of where you and I have been in the past and the things we've talked about in the past. And, and uh, and, and I'll and I'll explore those here in a second. So I was thinking that it, it's still possible to discuss the the horrors of Nazi Germany without being thought anti-German. When one discusses the savagery of the English boys in The Lord of the Flies, no one thinks of a slur against men or boys, or a vilification of the English. In discussing, as we did in our last session on Paul's letter to the Romans. Mark Danner's report on the massacre at El Mazote in El Salvador. I'm sure none of us squirmed in our seats, wondering darkly about whether we were veering dangerously close uh, to prejudice against the Salvadorian, Sal- Salvadoran military or engaging in leftist diatribe against the Reagan administration ideologues who used that military as a tool. In fact, the real subject of Danner's book is not so much the massacre as it is the ideological blinders worn by those members of the Reagan administration that kept them from recognizing what the massacre was and kept them from, uh, from feeling its moral and political significance. And that is an old story. Thinking about this, I was reminded of something I read in uh, Gustave Le Bon's book about the crowd, in which he talked about the, the Jacobin ideologues in the French Revolution, and this is what he said about them. Dogmatic and ideological to a man, 
their brains full of vague generalities, they busied themselves with the application of fixed principles without concerning themselves with events. It has been said of them with reason that they went through the revolution without witnessing it. And there was a haunting echo of this in Danner's book about the El Mazote massacre. And it comes from an American military officer who had been assigned to El Salvador during the time the massacre occurred. Uh, and it was made in a speech this officer gave to the American Enterprise Institute in 1985 in which he said, quote, the only territory you want to hold is the six inches between the ears of the campesino. Danner's report on the massacre of El Masoto resembles nothing so much as Euripides' the Bacchi, inasmuch as both are concerned with how easily we fall under the influence of the myths of justification and how painful and politically incorrect it is to try to awaken from those myths. Many of those whose ideological positions kept them from recognizing what was happening in El Salvador in 1980 would have been keen to recognize the sort of thing we'll be looking at today. But many who have been keen to see what Cold War ideologues missed in El Salvador wear another set of ideological blinders that keep them from seeing what Euripides' play forces us to see. If, as the subtitle of Mr. Danner's book suggests, the massacre in El Mazote is, quote, a parable of, of the Cold War, then the Bacchi of Euripides is a parable of the revival of the Dionysian that is occurring in our day. We're here not to talk about American politics, but to talk about this play, but it certainly impinges on issues that are quite significant and prominent in our society. If I have a disagreement or two with some of the most conspicuous campaigns of liberation in our day, and I do, it is not because I want less liberation, but because it seems to me too often the case that what passes for liberation is in fact a form of degrading subservience that is or ought to be beneath the dignity of those who think it a triumph. After Agave has murdered her son, Cadmus says to her, O oh, daughter, daughter, if your mind remains forever drugged against reality, your happiness, being all delusion, is but the greatest misery. And Agave says, Why all this talk of misery? She doesn't understand what he's talking about. Your happiness, being all delusion, is but the greatest misery. We have an assignment. We're going to not meet for a month. We have one assignment for the month, to, to rent the movie Cabaret and watch it. In that movie, Sally Bowles, who's the cabaret singer, she would have responded precisely as Agave did. She would have said, why all this talk of misery? While the Bakke is still fresh in your mind, take a look at that movie. What I want to call into, into question and what, I and what obviously Euripides' play calls into question is the Dionysian program for liberation. Euripides wrote his play in order to attack that, in order to expose its perversity. Unfortunately, he did that 2,500 years ago. About 100 years ago, or a little more than that, Nietzsche rehabilitated the Dionysian and franchised it to the world and proposed it as the recipe for liberation because he's not footnoted in the most prevalent uh, versions of it that we find in our world today, we don't realize how powerfully he has influenced everything. 
and he knew that he was going to do that. He knew that his own writings were as intoxicating as any wine Dionysus ever produced. And he knew, because he himself had been, become intoxicated in the writing of it, he had become intoxicated by Wagner's music, and then he became intoxicated with his own uh, f philosophical exploration of what all that might mean. And he realized its intoxicating effect, and in fact has had this intoxicating effect, has had a tremendous influence on the modern world, so that for most people, liberation means something Dionysian. For the question is, what is the path to freedom? And Dionysus, parentheses Nietzsche, proposes one, and Nietzsche understood perfectly well that the only real alternative to it was Christianity. The only obstacle to it taking over all culture was Christianity. And so the question is, what is the path to freedom? We should ask this at the very beginning, lest you think that I'm, I'm uh, saying we should put a lid on and go back to some old order. I'm not saying that. The question is, how do we become free? And the Beatitudes may not be the, may not be the sum and substance of freedom from the biblical point of view, but nevertheless, all we have to do is read the Beatitudes to realize what a dissonance there is between the Dionysian recipe for liberation and the, and the New Testament recipe for liberation. And we don't even bring that into our consciousness. We assume that the Dionysian recipe for liberation is a path of liberation. It's not true. It doesn't lead to freedom. That's exactly the point. It doesn't lead to freedom. It leads to mindlessness and violence and degradation. I don't know why I did this. I just thought of the Beatitudes. So if you say, what's the path of liberation? Then you will immediately laugh if somebody reads the Beatitudes. It's part of it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You think this will ever get on MTV as the recipe for liberation or freedom? Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The point is, one of the points is, that in joining Euripides in challenging the Dionysian myth, the myth that liberation comes from a Dionysian frenzy, one is not saying that Pentheus, Dionysus' opponent in this play, is right. Pentheus is wrong. He's just another... Pentheus is, is a Dionysian in uniform. And he says as much in the play. When Dionysus disguises the priest of Dionysus, says to Pentheus, if I were you, I would not take up arms against a god. Instead, I would offer him a sacrifice. Pentheus said, because sacrifices ward off this crisis. Pentheus says, sacrifice exactly what I plan to offer him. Women's blood, most suitably supplied by his own victims, I'll drench the glens of Citheron with it. In other words, he's going to perform a dismemberment just exactly the way Dionysus would perform a dismemberment, only it will be done in the official way with the army and the flag and the whole deal. 
but it's the same thing. The solution is Dionysian. He's proposing the massacre at El Mazote as an alternative to the Dionysian crisis. Nietzsche set up a straw man. Nietzsche set up the straw man of Apollo. You know, people, you still get in a conversation with, but you mentioned the Dionysian, people immediately begin talking to you about the Apollonian and the Dionysian. That's hogwash. That's what Nietzsche conjured up out of his craziness in order to try to justify the Dionysian. The Apollonian order, which is all just sort of stuffy and aesthetic and so on, and, and this Dionysian, you know, exhilaration. That's the two things. Well, that's crazy. That's Nietzschean. He misconstrued the classical tradition in order to conjure up that little false antinomy. So part of what I want to show is that the other version of that, which is Dionysus versus Pentheus in this play, Euripides knows that that's not a real alternative. And Nietzsche, whether he knew it or not, I don't know, but he certainly set it up so that we buy into it. And then I'll say this, too, about the Nietzschean dichotomy between Apollo and, and Dionysus. It begins with, a, with this dichotomy between Apollo and Dionysus, and then it becomes a dichotomy between Socratic rationality and Dionysus, and finally it becomes an antinomy between Dionysus and the crucified. And there's an interesting process that goes on. The enemy of the Dionysian begins as a kind of general thing, the general metaphor for order, the Apollonian order. And then it becomes something more specific, Socratic rationality. And then it becomes something very specific, namely the crucified one, Christianity. And I think there's something that happens in a Dionysian phenomenon exactly like that. We did part of the play last week, but I want to begin this week with the point at which the herdsman or the shepherd comes in and reports to Pentheus what has been taking place on Mount Scytheron. And the herdsman says, the Bacchanalian revelers, first of all, they were peaceful and dancing and frolicking, and suddenly they fell upon our cattle with their naked hands. Quoting, everywhere you look, ribs and cloven hooves were flying through the air and from pine branches dangled lumps of flesh that dripped with blood. In other words, a, a sacrificial orgy. Majestic bulls one minute, aiming their horns with all their furious pride, the next were stumbling to the ground, overwhelmed by the swarming hands of girls, their bones stripped clean of all their flesh, faster than you could blink your royal eyes. And there's a, there's a little parable here, because this is a preamble to what's going to happen to Pentheus himself faster than he can blink his royal eye. First of all, it turns to the animal sacrifice. This is really reversing Abraham's uh, revolution. And then it goes to human sacrifice, human violence. The, the, the herdsman says, Then, taking off with sudden speed, they swooped down the hillside to the flatlands. Like a rampaging army, they burst into the villages that nestle in Scytheron's foothills. They ransacked everything in sight. They snatched young children out of homes, carried them on their shoulders along with other plunder. The villagers, enraged, of course, by all this havoc, took arms against the Bacchae. And Pentheus recognizes that the crisis has begun. The Bacchic violence, the hysteria, is like a raging fire, he says. But in his dialogue with Dionysus, Pentheus can never get a foothold. 
Pentheus is determined to stamp out this movement like all good stalwart law and order guys. But he can't get a handle on it. And every time he tries to make a move to stamp it out, it just gets worse. And that's really because he doesn't represent something fundamentally different from it. And this is all the more so, the more he squares off, as we say. That's a great phrase. And to square off is, is to fall into the trap of the doubles so that each begins to mirror the other. So Pentheus, as he falls into this and also falls under the influence of Dionysus himself, says, quote, This stranger is like a nightmare you can't shake off. Whether you ignore him or kick him, he will have his say, and he will have his way. You can't get rid of the Dionysian by, by crushing it in the Pentheus-like way. So Dionysus now begins to work on Pentheus and to draw him into the whole crisis and to set him up, really. He says to him, Would you like to see them, the, the Baki on the mountain, all cooped up together in the hills having their orgies? And Pentheus said, Yes, very much he'd like to see that. So Dionysus says, Well, you will have to dress like a woman because you can't show up if a man shows up, it'll, it'll cause a big scandal. So you better dress like a woman so they won't recognize you. And he goes off to dress like a woman. Now, this is a, another fairly prominent theme in this play, and that is the breakdown of sexual differentiation. When Dionysus and Pentheus first meet on stage, Pentheus says to him, so, you cut a handsome figure. I'll give you that. Quite tempting, I mean, to women. The object, I don't doubt, of your presence here in Thebes. Your curls are soft, a bit too long for wrestling, but very pretty the way they hug your cheeks so lovingly. So that's earlier in the play, and now he's dressing as a woman. What are we to make of this? Well, if we think of it purely in sexual terms, we think... I think we missed the point. It's obviously something sexual. Something's happening to sexual differentiation. Uh, but what is it? So I would offer the following, just in passing. In a world of mimetic desire, which is to say the modern world, desire depends on a subtle and subtly tangled relationship between model rival and the object of desire. The fascination for the rival usually someone of the same sex, increases as the desire the rival helps inflame begins to have its psychologically destabilizing effect. As this happens, a latent homoerotic element is often subtly introduced into an already socially and psychologically volatile situation, a situation in which W.H. Auden, a homosexual whose prose and poetry I'm very fond of, called the land of mirror. It's what you get in that one line from Hap Lohman in Death of a Salesman when speaking of his latest sexual triumph, that is to say with a, with a woman who was engaged to the vice president at the store, he says, he's the third executive I've done that to. It says everything. That says everything about this tangle of rival model and object of desire. As the rival becomes the model, 
And as the primary fascination shifts from the original object of desire to the one who formerly was the rival, the homosexuality latent in many forms of mimetic desire gradually loses its latency, and it may take on a negative valence, giving rise to aggression or homophobia, or it may take on a positive valence, giving rise to imitation and homophilia. The relationship between the two is not the simple one, dear to those who think that eliminating one or the other of them can solve the crisis of which each is a symptom. That's too dense. What I just did is too dense. But if you want to unpack it, go and watch the movie Cabaret. At the nether reaches of this process is a phenomenon which today's pop music culture calls gender bending. And gender bending, whatever our moral qualms about it might be, is a symptom of something other than itself. It is not sick, simply a sexual phenomenon. It is a sexual phenomenon, but it's, it is not, it's, it's a symptom of something much bigger than simply a sexual phenomenon. So, Pentheus goes off and begins to do some bending. As Pentheus goes off to put on his womanly attire, Dionysus says to himself, Be revenged on this man, but first unhinge his mind. Make it float into madness, saying he will never accept to wear a woman's dress. But once his wits have broken loose, he will. I want the whole of Thebes to laugh as I parade him through the streets, laugh at this womanly man, this terrifying king. And so Pentheus comes back out and Dionysus says, You look exactly like one of Cadmus's daughters. And so you're ready for the journey. Pentheus, however, says this, Strange, I seem to see two suns and two Thebes, yes, two cities, two, each with seven gates, and you walking there before me, are you a bull? So Pentheus begin the, the idea that seeing two suns or two moons or two anything is a kind of classic uh, metaphor for insanity. He has fallen into a delusion. And in that delusion, of course, he wants to play the role perfectly. He says to Dionysus, do I hold the thyrsus in my right hand or in my left to be exactly like them? has to be perfect. And Dionysus says, in the right hand. He is dressed for his role in the right. He does not know this, of course. But you know, in the Dionysian ritual, what happens is the priest of Dionysus is the provocateur of the Dionysian frenzy. And then at the critical moment, he brings in an animal and festoons that animal with some kind of garlands or other recognizable features of the god Dionysus and substitutes the animal as the sacrificial victim. And he better do that at the right time and in the right way because if not, if it gets to be a sac full-blown sacrificial crisis, he could well lose his life. But there are plenty of examples of that in the Old Testament and in, and in uh, mythic renditions of things like that. There's always this surrogate victim at the last moment, and Pentheus, unbeknownst to himself, is simply being dressed up as one. In the play, Dionysus is the priest of Dionysus. In the ritual, the priest of Dionysus is disguised as Dionysus. And in both cases, there has to be a substitution uh, at the moment when a victim is demanded. And Pentheus is simply being dressed for the occasion. And I want to compare that to 
something I've talked about the Tezcatli Polka story, you know, in, in Aztec culture. But I came upon something the other day in the book Joseph Henderson and Maud Oakes wrote a long time ago, in which they more or less report on a lot of mythological materials. This is really their quote from some original source, but this is the story of Tezcatlipoca, and I want to read their version of it and just have you compare it to what's going on in this play. Then Montezuma adorned the impersonator well and arrayed him in varied garb. He adorned him in great pomp with all costly articles which he caused to be placed upon him, for verily he took him to be his beloved god. His face was anointed with black. It was said, quote, he fasteth with blackened face. A thick layer of black was smeared on his cheeks. White feathers were placed upon his head, the soft down of eagles. They placed it on his hair, which fell to his loins. And when he was attired, he went about with sweet-smelling flowers on his head, a crown of flowers, and these same hung over both shoulders. And then I skip, cut to the climax. And when he had mounted all the steps, when he had reached the summit, then the priest fell upon him. They threw him on his back upon the sacrificial stone. Then one cut open his breast, seized his heart, and raised it as an offering to the sun. The same thing is happening here in this play with Pentheus. Pentheus is going along with it. He doesn't realize this is like us modern. The idea of being the object of the crowd's adulation, there will come a day, a thousand years from now, when people will look back on our time and they will say, you know, there was a time when people actually wanted to become the object of the crowd's adulation. Can you believe that? <laughs> so desperate were they. So lacking were they in a real sense of self that they were willing to uh, have the adulation of the crowd conjure up for them some semblance of a self, not realizing where it led them. You know, when we go back and we read about this ritual, this impersonator of Tezcatlipoca was chosen at the end of one annual cycle, and he lived that way for a year. At the end of the year, this happened to him. And he enjoyed the year. And we go back and we read that and we think, how could he do that? How could he have enjoyed that? And I think a thousand years from now, people will look back on us and say, they sought ad the adulation of the crowd. And they liked it. The adulation of the crowd is always a cheap form of transcendence. And the only real alternative to it is a real experience of transcendence. So Pentheus is getting dressed up, unbeknownst to him, for his role in the sacrificial ritual. But he thinks of it entirely differently. He says to Dionysus, lead me through the very heart of Thebes, and which is what Dionysus already has in mind for different reasons. Lead me through the very heart of Thebes. Let them all see that I alone among them am man enough to dare to go to Mount Scytheron, you see. I, I alone among them am man enough. Now, of course, you have to see that this is being said by somebody who's dressed as a woman on stage who has already fallen for the curls of Dionysus uh, and who is now totally convinced that he's the only real man in Thebes. It's at this point, see, it's at the point at which 
Pentheus has already fallen under the sway of the Dionysian to the extent that the gender bending has already begun, it's at that point that he wants to start a men's group. So they go to the mountain, and as they go to the mountains, the chorus, which is the chorus of the Asian, the Asian women who are Dionysian devotees, uh, becomes frenzied, and the chorus sings, Run, swift hounds of madness, run, run to the mountain, find the faithful possessed, the daughters of Cadmus, goad them, lash them, turn them loose on the woman-posing, woman-hating, maniac, perversely spying in skirts. Well, this is supposed to be freedom. Goad them, lash them, turn them loose. The background question remains, how do we liberate ourselves? What's the path to freedom? And we've just seen these revelers goaded, lashed, and pointed in a certain direction, all thoroughly convinced that what they're experiencing is freedom. And here's what Nietzsche said about it. He said, if one had the slightest residue of superstition left in one, one could hardly be able to set aside the idea that one is merely an incarnation, merely a mouthpiece, merely a medium of overwhelming forces. The concept of revelation in the sense that something suddenly with, with unspeakable certainty and subtlety becomes visible, audible, something that shakes and overturns one to the depths, that simply describes the fact. Everything is in the highest degree involuntary, but takes place as in a tempest of a feeling of freedom, of absoluteness, of power and divinity. Involuntary, in a tempest of a feeling of freedom, absoluteness, power, and divinity. Well, that's the promise, is that that's real freedom. And in fact, it's possession, precisely possession. It's possession by the mimetic contagion of the crowd and it passes for freedom. And at the height of that possession, this crowd begins to chant law and order chants. The chorus says, Come, justice, arise, shining with the flash of your sword, and drive, drive it clean through the throat of the godless, lawless, ruthless Pentheus, the earth-born, earth-bound one. He will die as he must, it is the law. So they're talking about justice and law and doing away with the lawless one. This is precisely the lawless crowd. It's the Dionysian one, the Dionysian ones, and Dionysus has inspired them to abandon all, all codes, all taboos, all restrictions and prohibitions. Cast them all aside. And at the height of their frenzy, this shouldn't come as a, as a surprise to us. Because the relationship between lawlessness and law is precisely has to do with the birth of culture. It's how the lawless crowd creates a law and order culture. And it creates it in exactly the way it's described here. Justice, come justice arise. When will this, this frenzy become justice? Look what the text says. Shining with the flash of your sword and drive, drive it clean through the throat of the lawless, godless Pentheus. He will die as he must, it is the law. The frenzy of lawlessness becomes law 
At the moment of the, the frenzy turns on one sacrificial victim and vents its violence. And so the relationship between law and lawlessness is, is complex. The most lawless figure in The Lord of the Flies is Jack. And early in the, that novel, Jack says, when they first arrive on the island, he says with a kind of demonic gleam in his eye, he says, we've got to have laws and lots of them. And what he means by that, obviously, is that the laws will serve as the little tripwire for setting in motion or giving license to the scapegoating lust. If you have laws around that somebody's going to violate, then you have a way of designating the next victim and with moral impunity. So for Jack and for the frenzy Baki on Mount Sitheron, it's good to have a little law that can, you know, the beeper goes off and says, bzz, 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 bzz. ah, we've got one. And then we can turn the frenzy into the law and order. So the chorus says, Come God, Bromius, Bacchus, Dionysus, burst into life, burst into being. This is very Heideggerian right here. Burst into being. This is how being, Dasein, comes in right here burst into life burst into being be a mighty bull a hundred-headed snake a fire-breathing lion burst into smiling life O bacchus smile at the hunter of the baki smile and cast your noose and smiling always smiling watch the maddened herd of menads burst upon him bring him down and trample him to death Notice bull, snake, lion, the crisis of distinctions. A monster, but a monster of some indefinable shape. It's so, so uh, typical of, of sacrificial myths. And Shakespeare does a lot of this stuff too. You know, he describes sort of crisis, social crises in terms of undifferentiated monsters sometimes. So they go to Mount Scytheron and Pentheus cannot see the Bacchae because of all the trees in the way. And Dionysus obliges him by bending a pine tree down. And he gets on the top branch of the pine tree and Dionysus lets the pine tree back up and he disappears. And then there's only the voice of Dionysus, which is now the voice of Bromius, the thunder-speaking one. Uh, the, the, the people who write about this play say, it, to really do justice to it, you have to have a different voice for these different manifestations of Dionysus. And Bromius has this booming, horrifying voice. And that voice says, quote, Women, now that he's lifted up on the pine tree, Women, I deliver unto you the man who mocks at you and me and at our holy mysteries. Now punish him. And it's simply the crucifixion. It's the crucifixion scene without Christ. Pentheus is no Christ. But structurally... It's exactly that. When I am lifted up, Jesus says, I will draw all men to myself. Pentheus is lifted up and he draws all the menads to himself in a totally different way. But structurally, it's identical. And they fall upon him in a fit of sacrificial frenzy. Now, you know, this idea of being lifted up on the pine tree, when the sacrificial crisis reaches a certain point, frantic level, anything to designate, to cause one person to be singled out can trigger the avalanche. 
And it can be a positive thing, negative thing, it doesn't matter. If all it does is designate this one figure as a slightly more interesting figure than all the others, and the polarization happens with blinding speed. And so it's like being in one of those very fancy auctions where you don't want to scratch your ear in too, too abrupt a way or else you get stuck with this $10,000 thing. Only it's more dangerous than that because if you get designated, it's all over. Well, the pine tree designate and the voice of Dionysus designate the victim. And the chorus then says, now the chorus is describing this, and they say, bursting forth like a flock of racing doves, Agave and her sisters and all the Baki with them up the hillside, through the torrents, over the boulders they leapt, their limbs charged by the rage of their God. Agave cried out to them, quote, Menads, come, surround the trunk and grip it with your fist, shake down this climbing animal, or he'll reveal the secrets of our holy dance. And then you come back to this question about the fear of being seen by an outsider. He'll reveal the secrets of our holy dance. All primitive sacrificial cults take great care to keep out anybody who might be witnessing who is not imbued with the myth that justifies it all. Because all you have to do is have one person in there who says, wait, that, don't, that doesn't make sense to me, and the whole thing could turn into a terrible crisis. And, of course, he would be the next victim, tend to be the next victim in a situation like that. But everything is done to make sure that, as she says here, no one reveals the secrets of our holy dance. The secret of, our holy, of the holy dance, see, we think, oh, well, that means we'll get some little, some little alchemical formula and be able to go off and do it on our own. And that's not it. The secret of the holy dance is that the holy dance is a murderous hallucination. And somebody who sees it without being caught up in it will be able to see that. And they can't allow that to happen. So they fall upon him and dismember him. Now, the climactic scene, I want to compare two things here. I want to compare something from Flannery O'Connor and then read uh, Euripides' version. In Good Man is Hard to Find, I think, where the, this deranged character, the misfit, uh, who's a murderous figure, and he and his sidekick have just killed the, the old grandmother's family in the woods. And she's there, and she's, she, it's dawning on her that she's about to die. So this is the story about one who's about to be killed by the deranged one. And here's how Flannery O'Connor has it. Quote, The grandmother's head cleared for an instant. And this clearing for an instant happens, all, happens at the moment when... Her, that was the first time in her life it cleared, you know. It, all the rest of the time, she'd been lost in this haze. And uh, suddenly it cleared because all of the stuff that it had been lost in all these years was about to come to an end. And it cleared for a moment. She saw the man's face twisted close to her own as if he were going to cry, and she murmured, Why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. And she reached out and touched him on the shoulder. And the misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times through the chest. It's that moment of recognition and misrecognition. It's the moment of revelation. She recognizes their kinship. And he recoils from it and sacrifices. Here's Euripides' version of that. 
Pentheus's mother, as priestess of the ritual killing, was first to fall upon him. He stripped his head and tore everything away. In other words, he tore his wig off and all the all his feminine garb. He stripped his head and tore everything away, hoping that Agave, wretched woman, would know him and not kill him. He touched her cheeks and cried, No, mother, no, it is I, your child. She was foaming at the mouth. She was insane, oblivious to her own son. The messenger now reports, the chorus reports on this, but the chorus is caught up in it. The messenger is the only one that can vaguely at least see it for what it really is. And the messenger says, Pentheus was wailing while there was still a gasp of breath left in him, and the women were howling in their triumph. You get these two these two voices coming up out of this sacrificial event. The wailing of the victim and the howling of the crowd of victimizers. I was in my daughter's room the other day having a talk, and we I looked over and I saw this thing that's been on her dresser for quite a while and I saw it for the first time as they say and this is a a piece of Chilean crockery which we got someplace I can't remember where but women in a circle and it's a flute really and I'll play it for you it goes like this Somebody said that that sounds hauntingly like the the wail that uh, Arab women. Well, the interesting thing about this and you, uh, is that all these women are they have very wide eyes, as though they're in they're alarmed by something, and they're putting their mouth to their their hand to their mouth. Remember, the word myth means to close the mouth and close the mute, to mute, to mute the speech, to not see or not say. And most importantly of all, they're all looking out from the circle. Now, if you have that shocked look, looking away and wailing the way this thing has them wailing, and then you would say, well, what is it they don't want to see or more Importantly, where is what they don't want to see? Well, it has to be right in the middle. It's the, 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 the very thing they're turning away from. And so, now, don't get me wrong. This is a perfectly nice thing. I give it back to my daughter. We play it. We like it. It's fun. But you see, you know, this is like, she also has a crucifix on her, you know, her bedroom. I tried to find the legend or myth that this corresponds to, but I haven't been able to so far. But I offer it as Exhibit A in this discussion we're having. The howling of the women and Pentheus's wail, classic example of the cry of the victim and the and the and the uh, and the howling of the victimizers, which is really you would say designed, quote unquote, to eclipse the sound of the victim's voice. No doubt it is, but it's not consciously designed. It's the phenomenon that comes out of the, the crowd event. But then the messenger says, one carried off an arm, another a foot with the boots still on it. This thing about the boots being still on is kind of funny because when Pentheus dresses as a woman, 
the only thing he neglects to change are his boots. So he comes on stage and he's perfectly dressed as a woman, but he still has on these big men's boots. So the, the note is made here that when, when the leg is torn off, the boot is still on it. They toss the flesh of Pentheus back and forth like children playing games. Euripides is, he's trying to make this just as gory and graphic as he can. Nothing, the messenger says, nothing was left of him except for his poor head. His mother has it proudly in her grip. In other words, total dismemberment. And here comes Agave back into the, into the city. You people of this high-towered city, subjects of this mighty country, look, here is my trophy. Here is the quarry. We, your women, hunted down, yes, we, and not with nets or hooks or pointed spears, but with our own bare arms, our hands, our delicate fingers. Now, just notice, this is regarded as the symbol of victory, as triumph, as triumph. Now, there's another thing that happens. And notice how, this, how Euripides slips something in here that's so amazing. Agave says, You people of this high-towered city, subject of this mighty country, look, here is my trophy, here is the quarry. We, your women, hunted down, yes, we, and not with nets or hooks or pointed spears, but with our own bare arms, our hands, our delicate fingers. Now, what are they worth, your manly boast? Suddenly, out of nowhere, comes this comparison with the men. And this, is, this corresponds in a kind of strange way to Hap Lohman saying, he's the third executive I've done that to. You see what I'm saying? The resentment that went into the killing of Pentheus was unbeknownst to anybody involved, including his perpetrators, generated by the social tensions between the genders. And it only comes out here at the end. Okay, here's the chorus trying to put the toothpaste back in the tube. The chorus is now going to report on what happened on Mount Scytheron. And this is like in Billy Budd, you know. At the end of Billy Budd, you have the official report in the British journal about what happened to the hanging of Billy Budd. And then you have the rumor that the, that the Blue Jackets carry with them about Billy. And so here's the chorus giving the official version of what happened on Mount Scytheron. Pentheus dragged to his death by the folds of his female dress, pulled down into darkness by the gentle thyrsus he held so high. Pentheus the profane marched by a bull to his slaughter. Now notice, there's no murderer there. There's only the murdered one. And he's being pulled down by his own female dress, drawn into darkness by the gentle thyrsus he held so high. This is exactly Euripides, again, mocking the interpretive cliche, which is that the reason Pentheus fell was because of the fatal flaw, pride, da-da-da-da-da. There's no perpetrators here. It's all, oh yes, refusal to recognize that there might actually be a murder behind the myth. And Euripides is making the point that there is. But the chorus, the chorus is always, usually, not always, but the, usually the chorus opts for the mythic interpretation. 
So the chorus goes on. O Thebes, O Theban Baki, what a victory you have won. What a ringing triumph. And then, it's, and then they say, I see Agave, Pentheus's mother, running wild-eyed toward the palace. Prepare yourselves for the roaring voice of the God of joy. So all they, can, all they want to do is talk about what a triumph this is. And they use the classic interpretation, the fatal flaw, the pride, and so on. But there's no perpetrators of violence in their version of it. And Agave enters, and the chorus asks, who killed the savage lion on Mount Scytheron? Whose hands actually did the killing? And here, again, motivations surface that we haven't seen before in the play. Agave says, mine first. Mine is the prize for striking first. You know what the other women are singing? Agave the best. Agave the most blessed. My sisters, yes, but only after me. After me did they lay hands upon the prey. So the contest is still going on. It's not only a contest between the men and women, which comes out when they when she, she says, now where are, what are they worth your manly boast? But now she says, me first. All of us did it, but I did it first. And she demands that the, the old King Cadmus and the present King Pentheus join her in the celebration of her victory. She doesn't realize she has Pentheus's head in her hand. And she says, here's my trophy, here's the prey, we, your women, hunted down, yes, we. And uh, so she's celebrating it as a great, as a great victory. I think it's one of the deep ironies of our time that the, the women's movement, which is now multifaceted and, and, um, and so on, has really fundamentally one ultimate common cause. That is to say, one thing on which there is virtually no disagreement. And that's the need to support the right of woman to end the life in her womb. I think we're too close to it and all the political heavy breathing and on both sides keeps us from being able to, I think, see it for what it is. But I think the day will come when we will see that the roots of all of this go back to the sexual liberation movement and that that movement was a liberation movement which was Dionysian and not something else and that it followed precisely the trajectory that is outlined in this play. And uh, that's not to say it's just women, because, of course, you know, when the women's movement has, one, has Roe v. Wade as its one thing on which it uh, insists there must be agreement, the, 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 the sidelines are filled with men who are perfectly happy to have that be the case. Uh, because uh, they benefit from it too. We benefit from it too, in some perverse way. I think it's a tremendous irony. The other day I heard uh, Senator Simons from Illinois talking about violence on television. And he said, 15 or 20 years from now, we will look back and see what the, see the programming that we allowed to be shown on primetime television, and we will be shocked we will be shocked at what we have done. And I pray to God he's right because 
it's possible that 20 years from now we'll think it was nothing compared to what's happening then. I hope he's right. But if that happens, there'll be another corollary to it. And that is we will be able to see the trajectory of events that began when we took into our heads at the level of popular culture Dionysian ideas about liberation in the 60s. And I, and I breathed the fumes of those ideas myself. I, I inhaled them deeply. But in any case, I think the day will come when we will see that the trajectory of things that, that Euripides outlined in this play is, uh, has held. We come then finally to the end of the play, which is quite powerful and in a certain way hopeful. Cadmus comes in with a stretcher full of body parts from Pentheus. And Cadmus really is, I think, he's, he, he's doing in the play what Euripides is doing by writing the play. He says, I have, a, I have painfully assembled these parts after a long and dismal search up in the glens of Citheron, where they lay scattered far and wide among the forest crags in tiny fragments hard to find. And I would say that Cadmus is the first anthropologist. He brings into the city the evidence of its latest sacrificial frenzy so that it cannot be ignored. And as long as it's scattered far and wide among the forest crags in tiny fragments hard to find, the penchant that we have, human culture always has, which is to ignore what has taken place, would prevail. Somebody has to perform the anthropological task of bringing the evidence back. And that's what Mark Danner did in his book, The Massacre at El Mazote. He's not alone. There are a lot of other people involved in that. But it is the, it's the essential act of Western civilization. And Cadmus performs it. And at, a, at the spiritual level, it's the, it's the act that is performed in the New Testament by Peter and Paul. When Peter realizes that he too has been caught up in it. Now, Cadmus is the one who earlier said, oh, don't worry about it. It's, you know, it's not going to come to anything and we don't have to worry about it. So this is somebody who is not, he's not bringing the evidence in in order to indict uh, Agave and her sisters. He's bringing it in as one of the ones who has fallen into it, one of the ones who got caught up in it. So he's like Peter. And he's like Paul on the road to Damascus. I happened to come upon something this week. Never before have I seen anything like this. This You could say it's this Holy Spirit operating. I don't know if it's true, but it was, it was presented as true in this thing I was reading that after abortions, the doctors have to reassemble the fetus's body parts in order to make sure they got everything so that no, no infection occurs and no malpractice suits are filed. So if this play were like some of the other Greek plays, 
about the blind, murderous, arrogant, power-hungry viciousness of men, we would, I hope, be trying to draw as many conclusions from it as we could for present application. But because it is what it is, I hope we can still do that, even though it's far less politically correct. Agave says, and here's the third kind of almost pathetic allusion to another motivation. When she sees Cadmus, her father, she says, Father, be proud. Father, be proud. So we've had three things that surface underneath the, that have been underneath the thing. One is the tension between men and women. She say, where are your manly boasts now? We've done, it, we've done it with our hands. You do it with your weapon. And the second one is when, when Agave says, well, we all did it, but I did it first. And they're all singing my praises. So I was the first one and they were after me. And that comes in again here after she says, Father, be proud. These all, these, all these raise questions about what are, ultimately what are the motivations. As proud as, she says, be proud, Father, as proud as any mortal man can be, for you have sired the bravest daughters ever in the world. I mean all three of us, but me above the rest. From now on, no more weaving at the loom, no little chores for me. I'm meant for greater things, for hunting savage beasts with my bare hands. And Cadmus, who has learned the hard way, says, I can't look on this, this murder, yes, murder, done by those pitiful hands you're so proud of. He says, murder. This is exactly corresponds to what happens in The Lord of the Flies when Ralph says to, to Piggy, you know, what we did last night was murder. And Piggy says, oh, no, it was an accident. Ralph says, no, it was murder. And Agave, when Cadmus says it's murder, Agave says, how disagreeable old men can be. It's the perfect thing. It's the perfect reflex. It's the perfect way of deflecting it. When Paul said, neither Greek nor Jew, neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, he was, he was trying to remove, if you will, the categories with which we try to deflect the Christian revelation. We can we hide behind those categories. We say, oh, I'm free. I'm not a slave. Oh, I'm male. I'm not female. Oh, I'm female. Not I'm, uh, I'm, my ethnicity is such that that doesn't apply to me. All of those things. And Paul says, none of that is it. You can't hide behind those things. Cadmus says, Oh, daughter, I read this at the beginning. Oh, daughter, daughter, if your mind remains forever drugged against reality, your happiness being all delusion is but the greatest misery. And she says, why all this talk of misery? She still doesn't realize what she has in her hand. So now the really, to me, the really powerful part of the play is exactly here. We are all agave. We are all agave. We have all in some way, we're all Peter. We're all Paul. You see, that's what it means. That's what this play is about. 
It's not about good guys and bad guys. And we all come back in with our heads filled with all the myths that justify it. And then an older, wiser person comes in carrying the body parts and says, well, we've got to look at this. We overlooked this. And that's Cadmus. And he too is agave because he too participated in it, fell into it, justified it. So, But agave is his daughter. And so now he's going to try to bring her back from her delusion. And so on her nickel, we can try to be brought back from our delusion by Cadmus. And he says to her, Listen to me. Do as I say. See, he's lost us already. He's lost the modern world already. Is there a voice which would say, listen to me and do as I say, that we would hearken to in our world? We are so scandalized that the, that the very question, you know, to have somebody suggest that we listen and do as we're told is an offense. It's an insult. I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to figure this thing out on my own. I'm, going to, I'm not going to follow any... I think we have to see something here. It's not because Cadmus is wise. I mean, he is wiser than Agave, which is to say than us, because Cadmus here is Euripides. Euripides wrote this play when he was 80 years old. So he's wiser. But in a way, it's not so much the question of his wisdom. Listen to me. Do as I say. Make a list of how many people you would, if they said that to you, you would do it. And our ancestors would have would make a very long list. And we might not have anybody on. And then he says, first, look up at the sky. Look up at the sky. Why? Well, because what else? The alternative is to look around. And looking around is what got us into this mess. And so he says, look up at the sky. That's the transcendent. He's not defining it. You know, he didn't say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. He could have, because that's, what, that's, that's the refined Christian version of exactly the same thing. But we have to concede the fact that he's writing, you know, 500 years before Christ <laughs> in, a Christian, in, a, in a Greek world. But he knows enough to suggest some kind of trans social transcendence, that is to say, something other than the horizontal. Look up. Because what's ha what we have to do is clear our heads. So he says, whatever you do, don't look around. Looking around got you in this mess, look up. And Agave says, this is marvelous, she says, I'm looking, what am I supposed to see? You see? And this is, reminds me of Simone Weil saying, talking about waiting for God. Just look up. Never mind. Let the head clear. 
And Cadmus says, it's inside you. Is there still that lightness, that dizziness, like floating? And she says, something has shifted in my head. And he says, do my words reach you now? Can you answer clearly? And Agave says, yes, but I, I forget. What are we talking of, Father? Slowly it's clearing, her head's clearing. She's still looking up. And so he begins to, this process of anamnesis, it's called in psychotherapy, or recollection. And he says, in your husband's house, you bore a son. Who was he? She says, Pentheus. And whose face is that you're holding in your hand? She's not looking down yet. She's still looking straight up. And she says, a lion's? Or so the hunting women say. So all of a sudden, something begin begins to break down. Now it's so the hunting women say. That's the beginning of the breakup of the myth. Because before that, it goes without saying. And now, she's begun to say, well, that's what they say. Anyway. And then Cadmus says, okay, now look straight at it. So this is the second part of the equation. First is to look up until the head clears. And the second is to look at the face of the victim. And I'd say that corresponds precisely to the first and second commandments in the New Testament. Much more sophisticated versions of them in the New Testament, but love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's the vertical looking up. And love everyone else as your own flesh and blood. And the last one of those to be included in everyone else is the victim. That's what the parable of the uh, Good Samaritan is all about. That the neighbor is the one who recognizes in the victim his responsibility. So, I would say that what we're witnessing in our world is the failure of humanism to motivate a further civilizing of our culture. I don't think it has the spiritual depth and sophistication to give coherence to a project of renovation. And so it relies upon the most hackneyed idea of freedom and liberation, namely things like equality. And that's not to say I'm against equality, but I think equality is, is immediately you set up a, a tension. You never get there. So I think we're in a world where we're going to find out that we were, we've been operating on, on ideas of cultural renovation and liberation and equality and all of that, which simply don't go to the root of the problem and don't illuminate the real issue. In a smaller context, historical context, I think the day is going to come when we're going to look back on the superficial ideas of sexual liberation and just we're going to have to look up and take account of the like the sort of like the Marxists looking up from Eastern Europe and looking at the catastrophe over which they have presided and having to face the facts 
I think we're going to have an even in the Western, you know, at the social level, the Western world, we're going to have to do the same thing. We're going to think, good God. The New Testament says there are two rules for getting out of this mess. One is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the other is to love everybody else as yourself, as your own flesh and blood, so to speak. And I feel that if someone knows the living God, to speak in absolutely language that couldn't be shared outside this room except in churches, if someone knows the living God, then they can walk through life and little things that have to do with the whatever skewed situation the social world is in or whatever little you know rebuffs they experience or discriminations that might be there or misunderstandings or snickers by the others or something. And all of these things don't amount to a hill of beans. And if one doesn't have that experience of transcendence, then the tiniest little offense can become the cause celeb. And I think that's the death of humanism because without the real transcendence, we will tear each other and our societies and our families and, our, and, and ourselves apart trying to satisfy all the grievances that will be generated. I have lived a privileged life, no doubt. But I know people that haven't who wake up every morning with this profound sense of gratitude. All I want to do is wake up tomorrow morning with a profound sense of gratitude. And I'd like to think that things would have to get a hell of a lot worse than they are for me not to, not just a little bit worse. And it's possible to live in a situation where things get a hell of a lot better and you still wouldn't. And that's the difference between the humanist agenda and the biblical one, I think, because that sense of gratitude has to be real. It's not, it can't be just some sense that, well, I'm lucky. Agave then realizes it's her son, and she says, who killed him? And he says, it was you. You and your sisters. You were driven mad. The whole town was possessed. When guilty people are struck mad, their madness knows no guilt. When guilty people are struck mad, their madness knows no guilt. And Agave slowly realizes what she's done and she gives this last speech, which is the last speech of the play. Where am I to go? Cast out, unwanted. Agave here, I'm making these parallels in the New Testament. Agave here is somewhere between where Peter was and where Judas was in the New Testament. Both realize what they have done, the betrayal that they participated in. And Peter experiences contrition and Judas experiences guilt. Now, those are just two words, you know. We can use them interchangeably sometimes. But the difference between them is quite striking. There, there are two realities. And a lot of times when people are trying to get rid of guilt feelings, the best way to get rid of guilt feelings is contrition. To be stuck with that guilt is to be exiled and one becomes a wanderer. She says... 
I want to go far out of the sight of cursed Scytheron and Scytheron out of my sight, to a place no thirsts threatens or haunts even in memory. Let those who wish be Baki after me. She just casts this curse over her shoulder as she leaves. Let those who wish be Baki after me. This is the last play of Euripides, written at the end of his life, warning Athens of the disintegration that was overtaking it at the time. Let those who wish be Baki after me. I want to close by coming back to something more contemporary. First of all, Nietzsche. Nietzsche says, quote, The desire that is the creator of the tragic myth has the same home as the lustful sensitivity to dissonance in music. The Dionysian, with its lusts perceived as pain, is the common womb of both music and the tragic myth. M music played an absolutely central role in Nietzsche's embracing of the Dionysian. When he heard Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, he, he realized that the rallying cry had been issued for the Dionysian. And he was later disappointed by Wagner, repudiated him because he felt Wagner had shied away from the great promise of the Dionysian revolution and had become a kind of a crypto-Christian. <laughs> but for Nietzsche, it was music that would be the driving force behind the Dionysian revolution. And with it would, become, would come a new idea, a new experience of love. Nietzsche says in another place, Finally, we will have a love that has been transposed back into nature. By that he means something. We'll get away from the Christian idea of agape. That's what he really means by that. Not, quoting again, not the love of some higher virgin, no sentimentality, rather love as fate, as fatality, cynical, without guilt, cruel, and as a result just like nature. That love which is war in its means and at its basis the deadly hatred of the sexes. That's what the clarion call of the Dionysian revolution will finally produce. Says Nietzsche, its, it's, it's modern uh, promoter. Here's a thing from the New York Times last about six weeks ago, and it's a review of a rock concert by um, Nine Inch Nails. The lead singer is Trent Reasoner. But I'm just going to read. This is just the New York Times. This is I'm not making up anything. I'm just reading it and asking you to ponder. I, I pick up the story when the, when the band begins to play a song called March of the Pigs. The song resumed, a pounding, punching bag beat behind Mr. Reasoner's shouts, quote, I want to break it up, I want to smash it up. Nine Inch Nails finds comfort in destructive rage. Mr. Reasoner's songs are the confessions of a long-suffering sociopath, miserable and lonesome and furious, set to music that hammers hard. In an act of synthesis both calculated and inspired, he has taken the sentiments of mope rock, which is intensely self-absorbed and despondent, and connected them to aggression, uniting two extremes of adolescent tumult and transgressing some taboos along the way. The fusion brings vehement nihilism to a broad audience. 
The band's current album, The Downward Spiral, entered the Billboard album chart at number two. This was some weeks ago. I'm told, you know what's number one now? It's a, it's a CD called The Chant, which is Gregorian Chant. Lest you despair. Nietzsche was right. It's Christ or Dionysus. There they are. I don't know. I don't. Somebody told me that, so not to lose hope. Anyway, the album entitled Downward Spiral is number two on the chart. So we're not talking about a marginal, goofy, wacko thing out there that nobody's paying attention to. Often, back to the review, often a tune begins with the keyboard blips and drum machine patterns of house and techno music, then adds blaring guitars as the anger builds. As the anger builds. This is a music designed to build anger. Reasoner performed in designer tatters. This is designer tatters. You see, this is, if we had time, this is the whole mimetic problem. You know, there's a, there's a country music song which is, I was looking back to see if you were looking back to see if I was looking back to see if you were looking back. This is the problem, designer tatters. Tatters, what tatters say is, I don't care what you think. And to get designer tatters, <laughs> okay, well, he performed in designer tatters. The music, now get this, the music plotted for drama and impact comes across as both desperate and vengeful. Now, desperate and vengeful, we, we tend to think, this is how naive we are, we tend to think, oh, people are desperate and vengeful because they're oppressed and there are too many rules and regulations. And if we just let up on the rules and regulations, then that sense of vengefulness and, and desperation will be relieved and they'll become nice middle-class people. How long has it been, do you think, since a social taboo pinched on Mr. Reason? Do you think by letting a few more loose, we're going to solve his problem of desperation and vengefulness? This is the problem. we got to wake up. We keep thinking we're going to solve it by giving away the store. It's just getting worse. This is not a result of oppression. So last thing. There were two opening acts. One was Marilyn Manson, a more verbally explicit update of Alice Cooper down to the gender-bending male lead singer's name trafficking in shock value with tales of sex and violence. The other opening act, Femme and Femme, was four women with canned backing tracks who vamped and simulated sexual acts like leftovers from Madonna's last tour. I, I would wrap it up this way. We're talking about it the hunger for transcendence which is at the heart of all desire. And, and the irony is that all of this sordid stuff that I've just been talking about takes us right back to the New Testament and the two great commandments. And unless that, that desire, the hunger for transcendence which is at the heart of all desire, and unless that is oriented to the truly transcendent, it will create some deviated form of transcendence that will be 
destructive and murderous eventually. 